in the name of God, the Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whom we have fellowship and everlasting life. So sweet in communion through God the Spirit. Thank you. Not for just releasing us from certain things in our lives, but truly breaking every single chain that binds us and seeks to destroy us. Thank you, Father, for who you are. In the reality that through resurrected Jesus, you hear us and you are for us. And just as you moved on behalf of humanity thousands of years ago in dying and being buried and raising from the dead, you still hear us to this day and you move on behalf of your people. Thank you, Father. And right now, Lord, as we've been blessed by your presence, encountering it through fellowship with one another, encountering it through worship, through instrumentation and songs and singing and beautiful maroon wardrobe. Father, right now, we ask in the name of Jesus, please encounter us, impact us through the proclamation of Your Word. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If you would open up your copy of God's Word this morning to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 this morning. As you turn there, as I hear the encouraging sound of rustling pages, I do recognize that the student choir did a, the student worship team did a great job being very diplomatic. They wore a color that could be understood as South Carolina Gamecock color as well as Aggie Maroon. So they honored our worship pastor, Jason, as well as me. So well done, well done. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, this is what God's Word says. Now after John, this was John, not John Mark, the author of this Gospel account, but John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist who we can claim, but now that after John the Baptizer was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the good news. This morning we come to verses 14 and 15. And though it's only separated by one verse, there's a great gap between verse 13 and where we pick up this morning in verse 14. In fact, scholars say it could have been a chronological gap even more than a single year where Jesus was just tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And other gospel accounts give more detailed information there. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And then up to a year in time, he goes to Judea, which is the southern portion of um, Israel around Jerusalem. The Romans and the Greeks took it from Judah, where the tribe of Judah had remained in the Old Testament period. And Jesus was there for up to a year, perhaps, baptizing, teaching, proclaiming this. But then there came a time when John, the baptizer, was arrested. See, John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ, the one who is supposed to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a path in the wilderness, preaching the message of repentance, saying that if you have faith and change your mind toward God and profess faith on Him, that is your straight way to reconciling your relationship with Him. And during His ministry in the wilderness of baptizing and preaching repentance, He spoke out against Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of that region. See, Herod, for whatever reason, came up with the idea of marrying one of his nieces. This beautiful, disgusting, incestuous marriage, and John the baptizer spoke against it. Herod did not take too kindly. So he incarcerated him. 
And Scripture picks up in verse 14 in Mark 1, telling us, now that John the baptizer was arrested, Jesus came up to Galilee. Literally coming up to, because Jesus was coming from Judea area, the southern part of Israel, up to the northern part, a very densely populated area, Galilee. Where John the baptizer, who preached repentance and faith, was now incarcerated. And Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed Christos, Son of God, came now picked up the baton of the gospel in Galilee and proclaimed a message of good news. In my passage, I've crossed out and read two words in God's word. Forgive me. I've done it for good reason. I've crossed out the two occurrences of the gospel and I've replaced it with the words good news. Because I think you share the similar sentiment whether you realize it or not, but I recognize I stand before you this morning And when we hear that word gospel, it carries a plethora of perspective, doesn't it? Look up different denominations. Look up different organizations and trips and good causes. We're filled and we're so overwhelmed by this gospel, good news, for whatever reason, having a primary definition driven by humanitarian efforts. When we know... The primary definition of the gospel is not filling bellies with food. It's not putting clothes on backs. It's not covering people without homes with shelter. For as worthy of causes as those are, we know the humanitarian effort was God himself as king coming to die for you, a death you deserved, being buried and then raising from the dead in conquering king fashion, defeating death once for all. Amen. Hallelujah. You're doing all right, church. That's so all we know. A king came, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead once for all, defeating death that we might, by a simple profession of faith, repentance, what John the baptizer preached about, changing our mind toward God and confessing in agreement with his truth that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. You can flip over a few pages to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As human beings on this side of the cross, We have the privilege of living in this time of history, on this side of the cross, post-resurrection, where we know the fullness of the gospel realized. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, no, I'm not going to quote all 11 verses, okay? But he said, this is the gospel, this is the good news, euanhelion, the Greek word, that Christos, Christ, literally meaning the anointed one, the king, came and he died. The king came and he was buried. The king came and he was buried for three days. But not only that, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it gives us this threefold confirmation regarding his resurrection. That first, according to the scriptures of prophecy, documentation written and proven and verified centuries before this man Jesus ever lived on earth. Not only that, but we have eyewitnesses, thousands upon thousands. Within 40 days, personally, firsthand witnessed the resurrected body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as if Scripture was not enough, as if eyewitnesses were not enough, we also know, as 1 Corinthians 15 emphasizes as well, there is the bloodshed of thousands and thousands, numerous of martyrs throughout the pages of history who would never give their lives up for a conspiracy, but gave their lives up because truly there was God, a king, who died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Amen? I could just preach the gospel every Sunday and be sufficient, church. I think we forget that sometimes. But when we rewind ourselves to history in the genesis of Jesus' earthly ministry, to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, 
There was a king, yes. John the baptizer prepared the way for this king who would bring in a kingdom and an offer of his kingdom. A kingdom to establish in our hearts until he would come and establish it physically on this earth. We have a king in the situation of Mark. But he's yet to die. He's yet to be buried. He's yet to raise from the dead. So what does gospel, what does good news truly mean? That's, that's why I've crossed out in verses 14 and 15 gospel. And I've literally put in here good news. Because there is a unique aspect emphasized by Jesus, the King, in this context of His proclamation of the good news. And it demands our attention. And what you're going to realize as well, if you have a pulse of sincerity within you this morning, the demanded attention we give to the specific definition of good news here will leave us with a demanded allegiance to the King Jesus Christ. So we walk through these verses. And we see first... Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Mark emphasizes Jesus came and he proclaimed good news. And then he says, here's the good news he proclaimed. And the first thing Jesus says in this proclamation, as he picks up the baton of the gospel in Galilee, as John the baptizer is incarcerated, as he says, the time is now. The time is fulfilled. And in the Greek, you have two words for time. You have chronos and you have kairos. Here is the kairos. Where chronos is chronological, what it sounds like. The time of events in sequential order. But kairos, what our Savior used here as he proclaimed in the genesis of his public ministry, was the timing of seasons and moments. And what he is proclaiming as he's picked up the baton of the gospel is the time is now, the season is here, the moment in which God has divinely orchestrated redemptive history is here. The season of the King in whom John the baptizer proclaimed is here now. As we look through the history of monarchies, as we look through the reigns of, and rulers of kings, where the king is, there his rule is. That'll preach. Is the king in your heart? Do you know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior today? If you do, you should be able to say, by grace... He rules you. He is Lord over you. As king, he has dominion over your thoughts, your desires, your ambitions, your relationships, your careers. So he says the time is now, the season has been divinely orchestrated. It is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we can spend the rest of the time looking at this and the dispensations and what is your eschatology and what does this really mean? But guys, what's emphasized twice in these verses? Two times repeated. Good news. Good news. Our eschatology to divide us and how we debate different things is not the main idea of verses 14 and 15. The reality is that the king brings eternal good news. That's the main idea. And that's what I unapologetically preached this morning. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's near. It's readily accessible. And yes, based on the Greek and the emphasis of this context, you could accurately say Jesus said the kingdom is here. Why would he ever suggest that? Because there's two aspects of this, guys. When Jesus comes and you profess Christ as your eternally resurrected Lord and Savior, he rules in our hearts. He is king of me. He is my Lord and Savior. He has truly established once and forever 
signs still delivered by the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians. A portion of His kingdom. But praise be to God, He's not done there. Some of y'all are excited He's coming back. Praise God, this is not the extent of His everlasting kingdom. Because one day, God will say, Go, child, go, son, and He will return, and He will establish a physical, earthly kingdom from what we can best tell for a thousand years on this earth. Glory, hallelujah. And he won't be done there because from there he will destroy the earth in conquering king fashion. And then he will raise up a new heavens and a new earth in which we will dwell with him for all eternity. That's where the strongest amen should be in case you were curious. So he says the time, the season, the divinely orchestrated moments of time have been orchestrated to this. It is now, it is fulfilled. The kingdom is here. But then there's this oddly situated, almost appeal Repent and believe the good news. Wait a minute, we read through this, you can tell a little bit. I'm a little excited this morning. It's saturated with optimism. There's this, this abundance of just obvious positivity, this good news. But then Jesus makes a request. Almost it seems like he's still having to convince them of something. And I don't know about you, but in my own experience, my own life, when I encounter good news, it doesn't always require a lot of explanation. See, if we walked in this morning and ESPN News said that, hey, the Washington Nationals cheated and the Astros are getting the World Series championship. See, I'm a little bitter still, right? <laughs> hey, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying hard enough. Whatever they did, I don't care. If we woke up this morning and ESPN News told us that reality, would we then need another two hours worth of commentary telling us this is good news for Houston fans. Let me explain why you should be excited about this. No, though they still have it. ESPN News, they repeat day after day, hour after hour. You know good news when you hear it. You know it when you see it, and you rejoice and you embrace it. I know good news in my own life. When Judah was born, June 1st, 2019, when we had prayed for a fourth child to be born into our household, and we went through miscarriage, we went through struggles, and then we were finally pregnant. There was life threats on my, on my wife and on, my, on the child-to-be. And then June 1st, we have a full-term, natural pregnancy, glory to God, healthy mom, healthy baby, a healthy daughter who was still pleased with her brother, though she wanted a baby sister. We praise God. It was good news. I did not have to be tell, told by God, Coleman, be excited about this good news. That's not the way it works. But for some reason in Mark chapter 1, Jesus, the King of all creation and all eternity, says, hey, I've got all this good news, but I, I, I've still got to try to convince you and persuade you to buy into it. Why is that? Well, we think about the Israelites and the aspect of the gospel that Jesus, of the good news that Jesus was emphasizing at this time, was the very aspect that the Israelites struggled with the most. See, this good news that Jesus was proclaiming after he left the wilderness and after he came up from Judea up to the northern part in Galilee, he was proclaiming good news that no longer are there corporate kings and kingdoms out there, but through me, the king, there is a personal relationship available to you. The good news is if you believe and repent in faith, I can be your personal king. And for Israel, that was a struggle. Flip over with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 
you go to the portion of your Bible and divide that in half that's remaining to the left, go a little bit further, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We know in the Old Testament, God had structured things through prophets, through priests. That all through the different times in which He related with man, that He would be able to be a personal king to them through personal relationship, through that nation. But we also know the Israelites did not like it. They got tired of it. And they rejected such a design from God Himself. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 to, save, 4 to 7. This is where Samuel was the prophet to Israel. And the structure that God had in place for him to arrange it to be their personal king as God through the prophets and the priests. And verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to Samuel, Behold, you are old. Not a good way to start out. <laughs> and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. But they have rejected me from being king over them. God's desire from the very beginning, even before sinful nature came to creation, He desired to have this personal relationship, personal dominion over His creation. Not so He could rule and reign over all these robots and receive the praise, but so that in His glorious, infinite wisdom and godness, He could offer His very best. And he sought to display that to the nation of Israel, to be their king. Not just a king who was ruling and reigning on a, on a large scale, but in a personal relationship through prophets and priests. And they rejected what God had divinely orchestrated and arranged. So we come to Mark chapter 1. Jesus travels up from Judea up to Galilee. And he proclaims the good news as king. He says, the time is now. My kingdom is here. Would you repent? Would you? Though I know your history is one of rejecting a personal relationship because you prefer a corporate king in whom you enjoy the spoils and the benefits that come with his kingdom, but you don't want the personal accountability and the devotion and the allegiance to him. Would you now, at this time, since the divine orchestration of such a time as this has come to pass, would you change your mind? Would you repent? And believe on this good news. Would you make me your personal king? We come this morning. I know we're not the Israelites. But I think our struggle is just the same, isn't it? We like a lot of the things that come with the idea of religion and with a resurrected king. We like the idea that one day he will come back and conquer and rule and judge all and he will welcome us into his family. We love the idea that in this corporate kingship idea, this kingdom, that there is forgiveness of sin. But when it comes to the king saying, I have come and the good news is based on me and the ability to be your personal king, Lord, and Savior, we reject it. So no, God, I'm, I'm good. 
yeah, I love the community it provides. I love coming to church on Sundays because the like-minded people and the different seasons of life I can walk in life with. I like to have the friends. I like, I like the country club activity. I love to pay my dues and have the benefits. I love the idea that I punch my ticket to eternity. I love the idea that you forgive my sins so I can just go have a license to sin all the more. No. He says, you're missing the point, child. That's the kind of king the Israelites wanted. That's the kind of king and rulers the rest of this world can offer. The uniqueness I have as God the Father through resurrected God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is to be your personal king in whom you throw your complete existence upon, your complete allegiance upon. But for whatever reason, we struggle with it. Jesus says the time is now, the kingdom is here. Repent, believe this good news that I might begin to establish my rule and reign over your heart here and that you may be part of the everlasting kingdom when I come again. So five individuals publicly identify themselves with the king as we open up service this morning. Seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a sixth grader, a seventh grader, a ninth grader. Saying, Jesus doesn't have to convince me anymore. I, I, I believe it. I believe that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And the King offers a personal relationship for me that I might be welcomed into His fold. And what the baptism points to, church, it's not savoring some specific aspect of forgiveness or something that we just want to latch onto and have for ourselves and forsake the rest of it. It is demonstrating the fullness of the kingdom that God has established in their hearts already. They have died to their old selves. And as they come up from the surface of the waters, their old self has died, and yes, their sin has been washed away. But it doesn't stop there. For now they are raising up, as Romans says, to walk in a newness of life for the rest of their days. And what is the Gospel of Mark about? A call to faithfulness to the king at all costs. What is the king emphasizing here? I want to be your personal king. I don't care how keen you are to me. I want to be your king. I don't care about my likability factor. I want to be your lord. I don't, I don't want you to savor different aspects of the gospel. Quit using the forgiveness I offer as a license. Quit focusing on this aspect of religion just to booster up yourself and your, your status in society. I want you to throw your complete existence and your total allegiance upon me as your Savior. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, church, is He truly your King? Is he truly that personal king in whom you have thrown yourself upon? In whom, yes, you praise his name for forgiveness, but in that gratitude, you are so humbled and compelled to then live every breathing breath you have pledging allegiance to thee. Because when I'm honest with myself, man, I don't always do that. That's what I ask of you because that's what God asks of me. And so, Father, we ask that right now. God, we ask, we beg you that through our relationship with you, you would have your rule, that you would have your reign, that you would be 
king. Yes, that includes forgiveness. Yes, that includes relationship. Yes, that includes being a part of your local bride, but ultimately it demands allegiance to you and you having dominion over us. Father, I just ask right now that you would cause us to realize in a way unlike ever before what that really means. That your dominion as king over our lives does not mean you are placing chains or limitations on our lives in a way that is negative or harmful or depressing. But it's a dominion of liberation in which you give us your best because you are our king and we are part of your kingdom. Father, today I ask that you would raise up within us as believers in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Men, women, children, households, offices of work, school campuses, where we follow after you as our personal king rather than savoring whatever aspects we choose to pick that you offer in salvation. We pray these things and trust them in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand at this time. And here's the opportunity we have. We saw the gospel physically represented in baptism this morning. And here's what I know with 100% certainty. Don't miss this, guys. If you can stay just a few minutes longer, I invite you to so we're not distracting what is happening right now. I'm 100% certain that there are some of you in here today who have heard the good news that a king came and died, was buried for you, and conquered death. You've even heard the good news that all you have to do is simply believe on that truth according to the Scriptures, and you could have everlasting life. But what I'm 100% certain of is that some of you here who have heard that good news, you have never made an affirmative decision toward it. You know people who have. You've seen others who have. But you continue in a disposition just like the Israelites in this narrative where Jesus was saying, would you just change your mind today and believe on the good news I have to offer as your King? And as we sing this song, the opportunity is for you to walk down this aisle, be greeted by Pastor John or myself, and we will pray with you and help you understand what it means to once for all secure salvation through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't like to be in front of crowds? It's okay. Because there's nothing greater that would cause our hearts to rejoice any more than someone coming from darkness and stepping into the marvelous light of salvation in Jesus Christ today. So at this moment, maybe that's the decision you need to make. Maybe it's one of baptism like these earlier, or maybe it's membership. Whatever it is, we have the sincere opportunity to worship in this last song and respond however God Creator is prompting us to do. Let's do it in an honorable way and lift up the King. Let's worship.